Before we, well, I'm going to do something a little different uh, for the sermon. To start off, I'm going to read the passage that we're going to address as a whole because it's going to help seeing the big picture, and then we're going to break it down by pieces. So John chapter 2, we're going to go over the whole chapter. So John chapter 2, John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now became wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen, sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, if you remember last week, Week, what was the most important question we answered? We asked, what do you want? Right? Here's the thing. Jesus knew. Okay, Jesus knew, knows what people want. In fact, Jesus knows who every single person is. Right? We saw that Jesus displayed a miraculous ability just to take a look at somebody and then to know exactly who they are. And then in light of this miracle, Nathanael, one of the disciples, just proclaims that he is the Son of God and the King of Israel. And Jesus tells him, Jesus tells him, oh, that's just the beginning. You're going to see greater things than this. You're going to see heaven itself open up and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Wouldn't that be such a beautiful thing? Heaven itself opened up. To see the fabric between earth and heaven torn. I mean, really, it already has happened. But do we see it? Do you want the presence of God? See, Jesus' miracles, they do just that. It's like he's, every time he does a miracle, it tears a little, a little piece of the fabric between earth and heaven. 
Imagine it like this. You have a curtain dividing two rooms, a heavy curtain. And each time Jesus performs a miracle, he's tearing at that fabric. And each, with each tear, God's glory just shines through more clearly, which, of course, that's not hard to imagine, right? Because that happened. Through Jesus' miraculous resurrection, the curtain dividing the holies of holies from the rest of the world, right? The holy of holies being God's dwelling place was torn. Jesus' miracles, they take a swipe at that curtain. And we're not quite to the pinnacle of where the curtain is just fully torn and God's glory just comes out. We're not quite there. But Jesus, he's going with uh, his disciples to a wedding in John chapter 2. And here we see him take a swipe at the veil dividing heaven and earth. So again, look at John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, this is soon after Jesus calls Philip, Andrew, Peter, and Nathaniel. Now, presumably, John is with them, right? Because John records this. Interestingly enough, John, he actually never names himself in his gospel. Uh, just a side note, the details that he has are different than the other gospels, and we've got to keep in mind they're different people. Right? The disciples are different people, therefore they have different perspectives on what is going on. Regardless, Jesus takes several of his disciples, maybe not all of them, but several of them, to attend this wedding. Now, it's likely that they know the bride and groom. After all, they're invited. And one thing we're going to see is that Mary takes special interest in how the wedding is going, right? We're going to see that in a bit. But one thing we've got to understand before going any further is that weddings then were quite different than today, okay? Weddings back then would last a whole week. Just blank stares. Weddings back then would last a whole week, right? Are you kidding me? A whole week? Do you remember your wedding, right? Do you remember your wedding that was maybe half a day? Let's be honest. Weddings aren't too fun, okay? Weddings aren't too fun. There's too many people trying to talk to you. It's a blur. You know, it costs too much. Weddings aren't that fun. Now, all this is the same. They were different back then. They were a week-long thing, okay? Now, here's the thing. If you're going to have a week-long wedding, I'm not going. I'm just going to tell you now, straight, straight up front, I'm not going to your week-long wedding, but I don't think you'd want to do that because, one, uh, the, the bride and the groom's families, they would have to provide for the guests, all right? For a whole week, they would feed their guests. Imagine that bill, okay? Imagine that food bill for a week-long Wedding. Uh, anyway, let's continue on in verse 3. Point is, week-long weddings, not ideal. Uh, verse 3 says this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. All right, here's the thing. They would provide food for the whole week. They would also provide wine for the whole week. Right? Imagine that bill. That's expensive. But again, not the point. Um, in this verse, we see Mary, she shows an interest in how the wedding is going. She says, well, hey, look, they don't have any more wine. They've run out. Why is she concerned? Now, we might not get this, but there's a point here. Um, back then, it was more like an honor-shame kind of culture. So, if they provided food, if they provided wine for the guests for the whole week, they would receive honor. If they did not, shame. And so Mary, she takes a great interest in how the wedding is going. That probably signals that she knows whether it be the bride or groom's family. Now look at how Jesus responds to this in verse 4. And Jesus said to her, 
Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, there's a few reasons Jesus might reply this way. Think about it. They're not guests. I mean, they aren't, they aren't uh, the, the people hosting. They're guests, right? They don't have a responsibility to supply food or drink. Maybe that's going, what's going on here. Or maybe, uh, as Jesus kind of hints at, it's not the best time. Maybe it's not the best time for him to begin his public ministry because this would be a public miracle, all right? Because once he he goes public, that sets him on course, right, to suffer and to die. So maybe that's what he's getting at. Or one option that I like here, what he might be hinting at, and this is something that we see elsewhere in Scripture, maybe Jesus wants to see their faith. Maybe he responds to his mother in this way because he wants to see her faith. Take, for example, the Syrophoenician woman in Mark chapter 7, right? What happens there? She comes to Jesus, asking Jesus if he can heal her daughter, and then Jesus challenges her by saying, no, I first come for the children, meaning the children that are the Israelites, God's chosen people. I first come for them. And then what she says to him is so profound. She says, you know what? Even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Now in that passage, I don't think Jesus is being rude. I think he he challenges them. He challenges people so that they can demonstrate their faith. And in John chapter 2, verse 4, I think he's doing just that. Because look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. It's almost like, do you really want me to ask again, you know? How moms say that? You want me to ask again? You better not make me ask again. But I don't think that's what's going on here. But she just knows She doesn't doubt his ability. She doesn't say, "Uh, I think you can do this. She turns to the servants and just says, do whatever he tells you. Do you see how how much confidence she has in Jesus? She knows. She knows that he can do this. She knows that it is well within his ability to do this. Do we have this kind of faith? We don't even question that Jesus can do something for us. We don't question that Jesus can change us. We don't question that Jesus can cleanse us. Do we have that kind of faith? I think sometimes we question his ability because of our absence of faith. But Mary, on the other hand, has an immense amount of faith. Do as he tells you. Verses 6 through 8 say this. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Now, for context, these stone jars here are not for wine. It says it pretty plainly in the text. These are stone jars for Jewish rites of purification. So essentially, these jars would contain water that they would then use to cleanse themselves Ritually, all right? So they would use the water in these jars for ritual cleansing. Now, taking this, take a look at verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, it now became wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. Think about this for a second. Jesus changed, changed water in jars for ritual purification into wine. Now answer me this. What do we take in remembrance of Jesus? Not wine, but you get my point here. We take the fruit of the vine. Jesus takes water for ritual cleansing and changes it 
into wine. You see, what I think is going on here is a great foreshadowing to what Jesus is going to do later on. Have his disciples take the fruit of the vine that represents his blood that now cleanses us. Come on. Am I the only one who's nerding out over that? That's really cool to me. That's a great foreshadowing of what's going to happen. I guess I'm just the nerd here. Anyway, let's move on to verse 10. Okay, well, good. I just got some blank stares. And <laughs> anyway, verse 10 says this, and, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk free, freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, wow, I should really have Jesus over some parties. Shame on you, okay? Shame on you. That's not the point of this passage. In all seriousness, though, as seriousness, though people get concerned about the phrase, when people have drunk freely. People get concerned about that. Look, I'm not going to try to explain it away. I once thought I did, but here's the thing. That is the same word Paul uses to talk about drunkenness. So let's not get it twisted here. Let's not get confused. People were drunk. It's flat out. And now some take this verse as a gotcha verse, okay? Some take this in saying, oh, well, this must be Jesus supporting drunkenness. Yes, Jesus makes the wine, but that does not mean he's supporting drunkenness. And then some may say, well, apparently people were getting drunk. Why then would he make the wine? Well, we could use that logic for a lot of things, couldn't we? Right? Taking what we know about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 3, what does that say? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. So we're talking about all things, okay? We're talking about all things that mankind takes and mankind abuses, from the grapes that we take to make wine to then, some people, to get drunk off. From the plants that people take to become the opposite of sober-minded. Alright, so Jesus making the wine is not saying he supports drunkenness. After all, he made the very fruit that people take to make alcohol. He made the very plants that people use to become the opposite of sober-minded. All right, so people get all caught up in this passage here, and they focus on that, but that's not even the main point. No, Jesus isn't supporting drunkenness, but that's not even the main point. The main point is in verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, when you see that word there translated as sign or miracle, you have to ask yourself, what is being signaled? Because that's what miracles, that's what signs do. And here's what's being signaled. Look at the middle of verse 11 again. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. That's it. That is what the sign is signaling. It is manifesting his glory. Now that word for manifest can mean a few different things. It can be translated as to make known, to bring to light, or to make clear. Jesus performs miracles. He performs signs to make clear his glory. Now, don't misunderstand his miracles, and don't misunderstand his glory. The text is not saying that when he does signs and miracles, it increases his glory. It's not saying that, right? All his signs do is make clear his pre-existing glory. Jesus is already glorious. His signs just attest to who he is as the glorious Son of of God. And in light of his clear glory, what do we see? His disciples believed in him. 
Now let's make this clear too. Um, Jesus performed a sign. He performed a miracle. And the text did not say Jesus performed a miracle and his disciples believed. No. He performed the sign and it manifested his glory. That is key. And here's why that is important. Here's why his glory being clear is important. His miracle signaled to who he is. It made it clear that he was the son of God. Right? They didn't believe just because they saw a miracle. They believed because they saw who He was. Clearly. See, it's one thing to believe in Jesus because He did all these cool things. It's another thing to believe because you see Him for who He is as the Son of God. Continue on in verses 12 through 14. After this, He went down to Capernaum with His mother and His brothers and His disciples and stayed there for a few days. The pastor of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, we're not going to go into much detail here. Essentially, the people, they're taking advantage of those coming during this pilgrimage, during this time of Passover, right? Passover meaning they're celebrating how God delivered them from Egypt. Now, here's a question for you. How were they delivered from Egypt? Not specifically, but generally. They were delivered by God, right? That's generally how they were delivered. God delivered them. Now ask this. Did they merit their deliverance? Did they earn their deliverance? Did they deserve their deliverance? Or was that just an act of divine grace? But now, in the temple, you have people who are desecrating this time by taking advantage of them, by making them pay for sacrifices. They're setting a precedent that one must earn God's deliverance. One must earn God's grace. That's what they're doing. They're desecrating the time of Passover. And of course, Jesus is angry. Look at verses 15 through 17. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, the disciples notice that he is, or the disciples notice that this relates to Psalm 69. So turn with me to Psalm chapter 69 real quick. Specifically, they have in, in mind verse 9, but we're going to back up and read Psalm 69 verses 7 through 9. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's son, for zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In John chapter 2, Jesus clearly shows zeal for his house, but then there's these people there. These people there who are taking advantage of God's people and people there who don't actually see Him for who He is as the Son of God. And then they reply in verses 18 through 22. So the Jews said to Him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? 
But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They don't clearly see him. They don't clearly see him as the Son of God. In fact, they seek a miracle. What sign do you show us for doing this? They seek a miracle and not him. And of course, Jesus says, you know, destroy this temple in three days, I'm going to raise it. But in their minds, they're thinking about the physical temple. Right? The physical temple that Herod the Great raised up and refurbished in 20 BC, and it took around 46 years to refurbish. They're thinking of that temple. It took us so long to get it to where it is today. What do you mean you're going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus is talking about his body. He's talking about his body that they showed reproach to. He's talking about his body that they mocked. He's talking about his body that they crucified. Even in the face of resurrection, those people questioning him, they're not going to believe. So usually there are three different kinds of responses to Jesus. One, uh, some people, even in the face of resurrection, even in the face of the miraculous uh, things that were accomplished in Jesus Christ, even in the face of all of that, they won't believe. There are some who believe just because they saw Jesus do cool things. But then there are some who believe because they clearly see him as the Son of God. I think Jesus knows this. After all, look at verses 23 through 25. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his own part, did not entrust himself to him because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in Man, see, here's the thing. Jesus can clear, clearly see every single person, but not every person clearly sees Jesus as the glorious Son of God. So ask yourself, do you clearly see him? Do you believe just because of the signs, or do you believe because you see him as the Son of God? You can take the first step as we stand and sing.